Hey, I'm used to teaching people who are eating. I really am. My students sometimes will bring their whole meal into class. No problem for me. I just tell them to take notes. Well, yeah, probably they would if I ask them to. Back to Ephesians. I wanted to tell you that there's something a little bit unique about the way Paul writes here at the very beginning of Ephesians, that first part where it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That sentence begins there and goes all the way down through verse 14. So he has a 12-verse sentence. He apparently didn't read Strunk and White's book on style because they say make your sentences crisp and short and clear and accurate. But the way they translate them, they always turn them into several sentences, but it's actually all one sentence. And it's Paul's prayer. I don't know if you noticed that. It begins with prayer, verse 3. and comes all the way down through verse 10 as a prayer. And if you go to his second prayer in Ephesians, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over there to Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Paul says that God's hidden plan that was hidden throughout the history of the world, his hidden plan was that the Gentiles and Jews both come together as one body in one unity. And then he says in verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name, or from whom all fatherhood derives its name. I don't know what you called your dad growing up. How many of you called him dad? How many of you called him papa or pop? You know, my dad was born on the 4th of July, so we called him pop. But uh, no, actually, we called him dad. But in uh, Italian culture, they, they use Papa. Um, but the name, the word Father actually comes from God's name as Father. Uh, scripture tells us, in fact, Jesus himself says, don't call any man Father, because you have one Father in heaven. And I think what he's saying there is that there's only one absolute Father. All other fathers are just reflections of that father. I don't know if you've thought about this much, but if you are a dad, your kids will see God as they see you. Uh, I had an experience one morning when I just stuck my head in my daughter's room when she was little. And... Uh, she was kissing the wall. And I thought, what is she doing? I went around there and looked, and there was a picture of me there. And that was one of the most moving things to me, just to think about, that my little daughter loved me. And uh, I'm sorry? She did have her eyes closed. She did have her eyes closed, yes. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> I forgot about that. I did. Yeah, we did kick her out of the family. Yeah. It was an amazing, moving thing for me to see that. And I know that all daughters seem to have a special relationship with dad, and all sons seem to have a special relationship with mom. Uh, but your kids will see in you what they later see in God. And if a father mistreats his kids or abuses his kids, that's how the kids grow up thinking about God. Uh, the tragic circumstances of so many kids, uh, I could name people that I've had in class 
who have been devastated by their parents. I know a girl whose father got mad at him one time and didn't say a word for four months when they were living at home. And she brought that over to God. And she ended up becoming a lesbian out of anger to, against her father. Now, after a few years, she called me and said, I want you to know I've been straight for eight months. And I said, and Paula knows who I'm talking about, and I said, call me back in six years. And she did. And she was married and had a daughter. Um, so, you know, people can overcome the father image in their lives when they begin to realize that God is not dad. God is beyond that. God is above that. And it's just like Geneva said tonight at supper when she discovered that God loved her. You know, what a shock growing up in a church where she felt condemned all the time. When she discovered that God loved her, that changed everything for her. Well, God is the Father, and we can go to him as a father. I'd be teaching a class with 40 people out in the class in college, and one of my kids would look in the door and see me and just come right up to me. And I would stop and talk with her or talk with him. And then they would take off. You don't have to take a number with God. You ever go to these places where you have to take a number and you wait until they call your number? Gosh, I hate that. You know, uh, Social Security office, uh, places where you buy meat. You young kids, you wouldn't know about Social Security, but places where you buy meat at a Whole Foods market or something and you have to take a number and wait until they call your number. You know, with God, you don't have to take a number. The incredible thing is that we can just run right into his throne room, go right up to him, because he's our father, and he cares for us. He loves us, and he wants us to realize that we're his kids, and we have a special end with him, especially since we have faith in his son. We don't have to pray through some saint or through somebody else. We can pray directly to the father. And he hears every time. I like Psalm 139 where he says, Before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it altogether. It's a great statement. You know, God is aware before we speak our needs, he's already aware. Before we speak praise, he already knows what we're going to praise him for. Uh, a lot could be said about God being the Father. And his whole family in heaven on earth derives its name from him. He gives us the name Christ. Now, if you were Jewish, you wouldn't accept that name. That's a Gentile name. If you were Jewish, you would accept the word Mashiach, Messiah. You know, the Jews are called Messianic Jews. They're not called Christians when they believe. And those who are Gentiles are called Christians. And so the Jews refer to Jesus by his Hebrew name, Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus the Messiah. The, the Christians, of course, refer to him as Jesus Christ. And we call ourselves Christians, a name which derives from God the Father through his Son. And then Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. This is one of those many passages that I skipped over last night, talking about the Holy Spirit. God will increase our strength, fill us with power through his Spirit that lives in us. We have more power available to us than we ever think about. We forget all about it. Here is Paul in a prayer telling us in his prayer that he prays that God will strengthen us with his power in our inner being. God's power is available to us. I like what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, you know, he talks about the, the temple of the body growing old. He says, uh, we, we see changes. We see age coming in. We see more wrinkles and more gray and uh, the outer man is wasting away, he says. 
moving toward death. But the inner man is being renewed according to the image of the Creator. He lives in us. When you believe in Jesus, the resurrection power of Jesus enters you. And the resurrection goes on inside you as you grow to be like Jesus. That's what I want to see more than anything else. I want to see me, my, my wife, my family, my kids, my grandkids grow to be like Jesus. Now, this is what we were predestined for. Romans 8, 29 says he predestined us that we should become conformed to his son so that he can be the firstborn and we can be his brothers. Beautiful image. Strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being. We were talking about the, the power plant of, uh, in Spurgeon's church. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great scholars who wrote the treasury of David on the Psalms. A, a brilliant man. Um, three young Presbyterian ministers went to his church. I think uh, you've probably told this story here yourself. And they wanted to, to meet Spurgeon. And when they got the door, they opened the door, and there was a little old man standing there, and he said, come on, I want to show you boys the power plant of our church. And they thought, well, we don't want to follow this janitor down to the power plant. And they went downstairs, and he opened the door, and they looked inside, and there were 150 people sitting in there praying. That's the power plant of the church. When Paul prays for us that we can be strengthened with God's power through our inner nature, there's something happening inside us that's glorious. C.S. Lewis said, if you can see yourself as you really are in the spirit realm, you would probably want to fall down and worship yourself. That's what's going on inside. The older I get, you know, the more I see the outer part Wasting away. That's the way it is in this world. But we are creatures from another world. You know, Paul says to the Philippians, you will, so you will shine like the stars in the universe in the future. We are glorious divine beings. Have you ever thought about God's power in you, changing you to be like God? Jesus says in John 10, you are God's. And then he says, and the scripture cannot be broken. He's quoting Psalm 82. Human beings are gods with little g. And God judges among us. This is a shocking teaching. You know, I had a, I spoke on this one time at a, a camp, and one of the preachers came up uh, later and said, uh, you're a Mormon. And I said, no. I, I was quoting scripture here. Jesus says you are gods. And the scripture cannot be broken. We are divine beings. And Lewis is right. Something inside us is so glorious that if we could see what we really are, we would want to fall down and worship ourselves. When Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mount, and Jesus was transfigured, that word is used in scriptures twice for us. That the very brilliance that shined out of Jesus that even turned his clothing white, that shocked the apostles and they fell down in fear. That's in us. We are being transformed. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another until we see in a mirror Jesus' face reflected back at us. Something's happening in us. You know, when it talks about creating in the image of God, that's what's happening in us. We are the image of God. We've been redeemed. Our flesh, pfft, Satan gets it. The body goes back to the dust it came from. Go back in Genesis and look, and you'll see that God condemned the serpent to eat dust all the days of his life. Satan will get us, our bodies. He can have it. The body that I have is where my sin lives. I wake up in the morning hating my sin. I want that to be gone one day. 
And I believe what is inside will come out and be glorious. I don't know if any of you are Trekkies. Uh, I love to watch Star Trek. And the, uh, one of the new generation Star Trek, uh, Jean-Luc Picard and all those people, uh, there's a guy that, that is on their ship, and, and the guy is having pain all the time, but he can touch people, and they glow, and he heals them. And then one day, he himself is transformed, where his body, physical body, just disappears. And what's inside him comes out, and it's glorious. Have any of you seen the movie Cocoon? You know, what's inside those creatures is amazing, beautiful, glorious. Uh, that's what's in us. It's beyond that. Paul also writes the Philippians in chapter 3. These people in Philippi are so proud of being Roman citizens that they wear togas and they speak Latin. You know, these are all retired Roman soldiers that he's writing to. And they're bragging about their citizenship as Roman citizenship. And Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we're awaiting a Savior from there who by his mighty power will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. See, we're going to be like him. 1 John 3. When he appears, we will be like him. Colossians 3. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Hey, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah showed up talking to Jesus. And the scriptures say they appeared in glory. I always wondered how Peter, James, and John could recognize Elijah and Moses. Knew them like that. Will we be known in the next world? Yeah. We'll know each other better there than we do here in ways that we can't know each other here. If we want privacy, we can have it. Look at Jesus after his resurrection. He joins two guys walking on the road. They don't know who he is. Privacy. He walks with them and teaches them and their hearts burn within them and they receive the scriptures. And he goes on like he's going to move on and they say, wait, it's almost dark. Come and stay with us. Remember, he comes in and the veil is taken away when he breaks the bread. Baruch Adonai, blessed are you, O Lord, who gives us bread from the earth. Breaks the bread. They recognize him, and he's gone. See, instantaneous transportation. He could be in the upper room with the doors locked. He could be on the road to Emmaus. He could be out by the seaside making breakfast. I always wondered where he got the fish for breakfast. Come on. You know, <laughs> I wonder if they just jumped out and... You know, uh, filleted themselves. and <laughs> I've always wondered, you know, how did he get the fish? Did he go fishing during the night and catch them? What? I didn't hear you. I'm still not getting it. Oh, he went to the grocery store and bought fish. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Thank you. That's in Hezekiah 4, isn't it? Well, do you understand what I'm saying here? That, that God's powerful spirit is living inside us, transforming us to be like Jesus. And I believe C.S. Lewis is right. If we could see ourselves as we really, we really are, we'd want to fall down and worship ourselves. Or run away in horror. You know, one of the two. Don, <laughs> stop looking at me that way. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Hey, if Christ is living in here, don't you think it's glorious in there? Christ dwelling in our hearts. It's not that he comes in and then when we sin, he leaves and, you know, but he dwells in there. He stays with us. He lives there inside us bringing us closer and closer to his Father, helping us to change to be more and more like him. Uh, that, this is an exciting passage. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's by our faith in Christ that he moves inside us. 
And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. Two images here. Rooted is like a tree. Deep roots. Established is like something set up on a foundation. Once and for all. And he says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power together with all the saints to grasp This is, you know, I struggled with this for years. This verse right here. That you may have the power together with all the saints to grasp the width and length and height and depth of the love of God. Verse 18. To grasp, NIV says, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. How high and wide and deep, long. That's the universal. It's that number four again. I struggled with this passage until years ago I read a Greek commentary written by a man named Gregory of Nyssa. He's in uh, Cappadocia in central Turkey, Gregory of Nyssa, and he wrote a huge, thick commentary on Ephesians in 380 A.D. And in his commentary, he says, the height and depth and length and breadth of love of God is a picture of the cross. The height reaching up into heaven where God is a, uh, Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the root of the cross, the foundation reaching down into death to bring people up from the dead, and the length and breadth is the stretching out of the arms of Jesus to encompass the universe. What an image. That's the love that God has for us. A love that goes to any length. He will do anything to get us to be with Him anything, even that, even the cross. And Jesus experienced the cross because he knew on the other side of it was great joy. That's why we need to experience the cross. Take up your cross daily, Jesus said, and follow me. Everybody has a cross. The cross means that you're putting to death the deeds of your flesh. Your spirit comes to dominate. The cross is where we die. John the Baptist said it the best. He must increase and I must decrease. That's one of the few places in scripture where the word day is used. It is necessary. It is necessary for him to increase and for me to decrease. This is what crucifixion is, where Christ becomes all in all to us, and we become less and less until we become more and more like him. Paul says, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. I live, but not I. It's really Christ who lives in me. I died back there. Romans 6, baptism means you died. You know, people don't know this. I studied the word baptism to write an article years ago. Josephus, who was a great Jewish historian who wrote between 70 and 90 A.D., he was a general in the, uh, the army of Israel, he had a thousand men under him. He knew the scriptures. He knew Jesus' prediction in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 that was passed down by the apostles that Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans. He knew that. And so he surrendered with his army to the Romans. And the Romans greatly admired Josephus. And Vespasian, the emperor of Rome, whose son Titus conquered and burned Jerusalem, 
in 70 AD. You want to see something interesting? Look up the Arch of Titus. You can Google it. And you can look at a picture on the front. It was, it was started in 70 AD, the year Jerusalem was annihilated once and for all, where the Jewish state was wiped out, where the Jews could no longer follow the law because there's no place to offer sacrifice. And there hasn't been for almost 2,000 years. I always wondered, why are the Jews still here? Well, read the Old Testament, and you'll see that they've always been stubborn. You know, they, they still obey all the other laws that they can, the kosher regulations and so on. But the Arch of Titus has a picture from 70 A.D. in bas relief on the front of it. It's a huge, probably five stories high, you can, and a road goes through underneath it. On the front of it is a picture of the Jews carrying the seven-pronged candlestick of Moses and the Torah and the, the uh, altar of incense, and behind them stand Roman soldiers with whips in their hands. See, it's a humiliating picture for the Jews because they've been conquered by Rome. Titus conquered them, the son of Vespasian. And so Vespasian asked Josephus, this Roman general, to write a history of the Jews so he could understand why the Jews were so rebellious, why the Romans had to keep coming down there and squashing them. There was one more major squash that had to happen when Bar Kokhba took a bunch of guys up on Masada. I don't know if you've seen the movie Masada. It's worth seeing. It's a butte out in the middle of the desert, and the Roman army couldn't go up there because there's only a one-man trail up there, and one guy at the top could keep anybody from coming up. And so they just camped around it, starved them out. And finally, these true believers, these Jews who escaped the destruction of Jerusalem, did the Hava Nagila. They danced, and they sang, and they committed suicide up on the mountain. And when the Romans finally did get up there, there was nothing left. They had eaten all the food. There was nothing of any value up there. But these guys had to be conquered. And the Arch of Titus is the memorial to the destruction of Jerusalem and Judaism. And so Josephus writes a history of the Jews. And he tries to make the Jews look a little better than the Bible. He starts the same place the Bible does, at the beginning of the creation of the world. He gives a very powerful statement about Jewish history, and he traces it all the way down to 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem, and about the last 20 or 30 pages of his book. And let me recommend, if you want to read Josephus, read The Essential Josephus by Paul Meyer, M-A-I-E-R, The Essential Josephus. It's about yay thick. Josephus wrote two million words, about that thick, very small print, great big book. Um, Abraham Lincoln had that in the Bible. That's what he grew up on. Almost all scholars read Josephus in the Bible. And so if you read the essential Josephus, you'll be reading the essence of what Josephus was saying. He has a few, you know, side issues that Josephus dealt with but not anywhere near the detail that Josephus did. Did an excellent job. I had to write a review for it for uh, the Stone Campbell Journal. And I read the book and just loved it, and now I require all my students to buy it. Uh, the essential Josephus. Well, Josephus used the word baptism eight times. And I looked at every one of the times that he uses it. He says, the Romans baptized Jerusalem. That means they destroyed it. They burned it down and destroyed it. Took all the people out. The Romans destroyed this city. The Romans sank, rammed and sank a ship. Sank, that's the word baptizo, baptized. Uh, the Romans uh, in, in the army took their swords and plunged them into people. Plunge, that's the word baptized. In every case Josephus uses it, it means death. And when you look at the sixth chapter of Romans and read it carefully, you'll see the word dead, death, 
dying die in there over and over and over because that's what baptism means. You died back there. And that's when Christ's Spirit began to re-energize you. And that's what's happening right here, that Paul is praying that through his Spirit we can come to know the cross of Christ in all God's love being expressed there. That, that tells me that God would go to any, any lengths for any of us. He loves us that much. And what does he want from us? Micah tells us, Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you? Does he want rivers of oil? Does he want the sacrifice of thousands of rams and goats? What does God want? Does he want the, the offspring of your own body for the sin of your soul? And then he says, the Lord has told you, O man, what is good. And it's, O man, it's not for Israel, it's for everybody. The Lord has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice. That means treating people with respect. To do justice, to love mercy, to keep that covenant relationship between you and God. And to walk humbly with your God. That's what God wants. That's the message of the entire Bible right there in one verse in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Amazing. What does he want? He wants us to treat people right. He wants us to keep our covenant relationship with God alive and active. And he wants us to walk humbly with him. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, if we walk beside Jesus, you know, a yoke is a bars and bands for oxen, but it's two oxen. Why do they say oxen? Oh, it's German, that's why. Instead of oxes. Anyway, English is weird too, but mice, you know, is the plural of house, heis. Yeah. Um, but here, what you have here is uh, two oxen pulling a plow. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. If Jesus is walking beside you, your work is going to be much, much easier. And that's, that's all God's ever wanted is for us to walk humbly with him. Maybe if we do that, we will grasp the width and length and height and depth of the love of God. And then I don't understand the next verse. He says, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? Is he talking about experiencing it? There are two Greek, two Greek words for knowledge. This one does mean to experience. Gnosko. You will experience the love of God. You will know the love of God by experience if you are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The fullness of God lives inside us. This is beyond something we can understand. The Father, the Son, the Spirit dwelling within us so that we can know his love. And it's all about the love that surpasses knowledge. Now look at this next little part in this final word in his in this wonderful prayer. The doxology. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He is able to do what? immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine. The highest thoughts we have fall short of what God can do in us. And this is part of the glory of this passage. Any uh, comments or questions you have about this, we'll get back to the comments and questions at the end. I want to go straight on with this because the next 16 verses tell us 
the biblical doctrine of ministry. Uh, there are two places where you can read about it. There's a place that I call 2T22. Second Timothy 2.2 in the New Testament where Paul says, teach men who can teach other men who can teach other men. You know, passing the gospel on from generation to generation, that's how we got it. We got it from people who taught us. And now we teach it to people so that they can learn it and teach it to others. Generation after generation. This is the biblical doctrine of ministry. Men being taught by men who will teach men. Women being taught by women who will teach women. And then, this passage right here is the other place where the doctrine of ministry is set forth. Now, I'm going to skip through part of this, but I want you to see, first of all, that when Paul talks about the body of Christ, because I want to focus on something later in chapter 4, when Paul talks about the body of Christ, there are three times he does, and every time he does it, he has the number seven in there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7, he talks about the supernatural gifts that were given to the church, uh, prophecy, uh, healing, speaking in tongues, and so on. And he says, these are given by the one spirit, the same spirit, the one spirit, the same spirit, the one spirit, the same spirit, the one and the same spirit. Seven mentions of the Holy Spirit. You've heard of the seven spirits of God? You can find that in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. All seven spirits are listed there, and they rest upon Jesus. And those, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1 is about the Messiah. And chapter 11, verse 10 is about the Messiah. The whole section is about the Messianic kingdom. And the description of Jesus, the seven spirits of God rest upon him. That's, that's verse 2. Isaiah is amazing. Uh, he sees Jesus more clearly than anybody else. So, we have in uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, Seven gifts when he talks about the body. So you got seven gifts, seven mentions of the Holy Spirit, and then here in Ephesians chapter 4, you have seven ones. The basis of all unity is the nature of God himself. And here are the seven ones. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is, here we go, one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Tell me if you understand this next part. Who is over all and through all and in all. Seven ones talking about the body of Christ here. He continues talking about the body uh, most clearly in verse 11. Talking about Jesus, the one who ascended into heaven. The one who led captivity captive. Verse 11 says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So you got prophets, evangelists, uh, I left out one, apostles. And then you got pastor, teachers. Again, it's the number four. Jesus gives four, church, four gifts to the church. Pastors and teachers, that's the same person. The chi that connects these, the and there, means that these are one. And so you've got apostles. Who are the apostles? There were 12, minus 1, which equals 11, plus 1, maybe, Matthias. But I really think that Paul was God's choice there. But yeah, Barnabas is called an apostle. 
Tychicus is called an apostle. Two people, a couple in Romans 16, Andronicus, a man, and Junius, his wife, are called apostles. There are several apostles, but there are 12 unique ones, including, I think, Paul and the other 11. Somebody said that Matthias, uh, chosen in Acts chapter 1 by the casting of lots, was numbered with the apostles, Luke said, but then you never hear of him, never hear of him again. So there's nothing even in, the, in church history that I know of about Matthias. And that was my major at the uh, University of Dallas. I think it's Paul was God's choice for the 12, my opinion. So there are 12 apostles plus others. What's an apostle? The word apostello, the Greek word means sent out with authority. An apostle is one who is sent out with authority. He has an authoritative message. He's the one that was taught specifically by Christ. Now, Paul is unique. These guys were with Jesus three and a half years. Three and a half is another interesting number. Time and times and half a time. 1,260 days. 42 months. Twelve and a half, or, or three and a half always is a negative number because at the end of the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, he's killed. He's cut off. Daniel predicted that back in Daniel 9, the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Daniel says, Daniel gives the exact date of the Messiah's birth, 5 B.C., gives the date of the Messiah's death and tells how long his ministry is, three and a half years. When, Ezekiel, when Elijah stopped Stop the rain. He said, he said to King Ahab, it's not going to rain till I say so. Three and a half years without rain. It's always a negative meaning in Scripture. It's always a tragedy. These men were, were taught, these 12 original ones, were taught by Jesus three and a half years. One of them was the devil, John says. One of those was his betrayer who ended up hanging himself. And so he had to be replaced. Peter thought Matthias could do the job, but I think God's choice was Paul. Paul ends up writing, you know, over half of our New Testament, not counting the Gospels. Um, where did Paul get his Gospel? Well, he spent two years in Arabia. Read the first chapter of Galatians. He spent two years in Arabia being taught face-to-face -face by revelation from Jesus. He already had all that Old Testament background down since he was a Pharisee, Ph.D. in the law. And Jesus takes that as a foundation and just arrests him on the road to Damascus and blinds him and he had eye trouble the rest of his life. He writes to the Philippians and says, uh, any one of you would gladly have given me your eyes. I think that was his thorn in the flesh. You know, he, he couldn't read very well. He couldn't, couldn't write very well. At the end of Colossians, he says, see with what large letters I write. I think he had to write big so he could see what he was doing. And he prayed three times that God would take that problem away. But God said, my grace is sufficient for you. God's the one that caused it. Because Paul was blind because of his lack of faith. He was killing Christians. He was fighting against Jesus. When Jesus... You know, the story is three times in the book of Acts. The story of Paul's conversion. First, Luke tells it in chapter 9, then Paul tells it twice, chapter 22 and later in chapter 26. It's an, a very important story in Acts because here's a guy who was transformed overnight. Three days of darkness. Ananias lays hands on him. Get up. Why don't you get yourself baptized? Wash away your sins. And so he does. And then when he tries to preach, the Christians are all afraid of him. When he tries to go into the assembly, they flee from him until Barnabas comes along, another one who's called an apostle. And Barnabas takes Paul under his wing and takes him in and tells the people, you can trust this man. He's preaching Christ. And uh, 
is an amazing person. So the, the, those are the apostles. The prophets, who are they? Comes from a, uh, two Greek words, pro and thami. Pardon? Yeah, it means to speak before. It can mean to speak before a group or to speak before something happens. Most of the time, I would say in the Old Testament, and I've read this from scholars, 98% of the Old Testament prophecy is about there and then. 2% is about the future. When prophets speak, they speak to the group that's there. Now, there may be something later about the future. I believe that the book of Revelation is written to the people who are there in the first century. And the farther you go in the book, a little bit more, a little bit more you get of the future. But at the beginning, it's all about what's present, what's there. So the prophets speak before the assembly. And God miraculously could dump a direct message into the mind of a prophet. You can read that in 1 Corinthians. These guys get a message directly from God. But when your preacher stands up and preaches, that's prophecy in the Bible. Telling people, forth-telling, you know, telling people what's happening and what, what is right now. Evangelist, the Greek word evangel is the word gospel. So this is a gospelist. This is the guy who goes out and preaches the gospel. Now the gospel is the death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus for sin, to take away our sins, and to make us right with God. The gospel is the death of Jesus for our sins, the burial, and the resurrection to make us right with God. That's the gospel. The essence of what it takes to become a Christian is the gospel. If you believe that, that Jesus died for you, took away your sins, that God, that, that God raised him from the dead to make us right with him, if you believe that, if your faith is in Jesus, then you are a follower of the gospel. And you have a promise of salvation from that. The evangelist takes the gospel. And then the pastor teacher is the guy who comes in later and tells you what the gospel means. What's it mean to you now? This is why we're studying Ephesians, to find out what it means to me that I believe. It means to me that God has given us four gifts to the church for two reasons. Can you read the next couple of verses? It was he who gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Here's the first reason God gave them to prepare God's people for, and here's the Greek word. Can't do that. Diakonia. For every Christian to grow up to become a deacon. The word deacon means servant. There were in the early church men deacons and women deacons. The uh, church I have uh, been working with in Sherman has what they call deaconesses, but the biblical word that's used for women in service is the word deacon, the same as it's used for men. There are also characteristics for women to be deacons over in 1 Timothy 3. So every Christian is to be taught to become a deacon, that is, a servant of Christ in the church. You see what he says? These people, these four gifts, are given to prepare the saints for works of service, to prepare for diaconia, you know, so that we can all become deacons. What's the word prepare mean? I looked that word up. Katartizo is the word. Get the word artesian from that. Something that digs deep down in the ground to get good water. Artizo, the, the word means to prepare, to equip. 
It was used for preparing soldiers, for putting on the whole armor, for putting on the knapsack on the back, for preparing uh, the hobnailed uh, sandals that were laced clear up to your knees. And we're going to talk about the items of armor tomorrow night, if the Lord's willing, in chapter 6 uh, in, in Ephesians. But all this preparation is preparing ships to go into battle. It's all about war. The word is also used, this word prepare that's here in verse 12, is also used for Peter, James, and John when they're on board the ship mending their nets. The word means to mend people so they can carry the gospel, so they can serve. It's a beautiful image. You know, nets that need mending can't, can't catch fish unless they're mended. And people can't be fishers of men unless they're mended. And all of us need mending one time or another. I guarantee you. I've had people help me along the way. I've had people confront me first. Uh, when our new dean came in back in the late 70s, uh, he confronted me. First, he, he laid a big compliment on me, something very positive, and just opened me up. You know, I loved what he was saying. And then he said, but I see two things wrong with you. Bang, bang, right on the button. I went up to my office, cried for two hours, went back down to his office, said, I want you to give me all your IQ tests, all your service tests, you know, everything you can give me, all your psychology tests. I want you to help me. And for two and a half years, he mended me with God's help. And after two and a half years, Ron Rife, I went to him and I said, I love you, I hope you stay here, but I don't need you anymore because you have moved me farther along and I, I feel like I'm appointed, apprenticed to Christ now. And I've been mended, you know, mending people so they can serve. That's what the church is here for. I don't know how much service goes on uh, that this church does in the community, but when you know somebody has needs, our job, the job of the Christian, is to love those outside as well as those inside. And you love by helping them with their needs. I gave you the definition of agape, helping others. That's what it's about. If you see a need, man, help these people. That's how the church grows, by the church helping people. We got a whole family in our church uh, in Dallas because uh, the church went out and insulated a house and put up drywall for an old couple who couldn't afford it. And their whole family ended up coming into church. You've reminded me of a time at a church when uh, they were discussing the idea of making some ladies deaconesses. That's, it's just like serving. any other. They were just happy to serve. Yeah. They don't need a title to do it. We don't need titles to help. And we are so passionately appreciative of God's grace, what he's done for us. There's nothing yeah. to do but respond. Yeah, God, if, we're, if we appreciate what God's done, yeah. we will serve. That's and you don't have to have the title to be a servant. You don't have to be called an elder to be one of the leaders of the church. One of the, you know, to me, an elder is a person who serves more than anybody else. The elder is not ruling. In fact, that's the opposite of what Jesus said. Ruling, Jesus said, the lords of the Gentiles rule over them, but it shall not be so among you. But he who is the least will be the greatest. See, service is what it's about. A servant leadership, that's what the church needs. And these evangelists bring people to Christ and help prepare them to become servants. These, all these groups here, the pastor-teacher helps people learn to serve. The last pastor-teacher, you know what this is. Pastor is a shepherd. These are people who shepherd and teach. Now, this is one of the uses of the word uh, poimen, which could be interchanged with the word episkopos, from which we get the word episcopal church, the word presbyteros, which we get the word Presbyterian, all those words mean the same person. 
the pastor, the elder, the uh, overseer, all those are the same person. And their job is to miss, to miss the sheep when they don't show up. And to get in touch with them and find out why. Are you sick? Are you okay? Can we do anything for you? You know, this is part of the job of the elder, part of the job of any leader in the church. So, the, thank you for that, Joe. Uh, the, first, the first thing that these four people are to do is to prepare God's people to serve. And the second thing is so the body of Christ may be built up. It actually says that the servers, these people here, the beginners in the church, the workers in the church, are the ones who build up the body. You know, I think sometimes our churches hire somebody to build up the body. And the church itself is the one who's supposed to be building up the body. Everybody, if you share with one person once a month, you know, I mentioned to you a couple nights ago that the church is growing at a rate of 83,000 people per hour. 2.1 million new Christians per day. Uh, it's an incredible period of time to live in. This is the fastest growth in the history of the world for God's kingdom. In China, in India, places all over the world. There are 40,000 people a day in one province of China alone becoming Christians. It's just incredible. And the church here in America is losing an average of 1% per year because the church has lost its basis for service. We've forgotten that that's what we're here for, to help people so that the body of Christ may be built up. This is the word edification. Our job is to build up the body. All of us, the leaders, help God's people to do that. And then look what happens. Verse 13. Until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. It's not knowing about Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. And becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. There it is. If we all grow up to be like Jesus. That's the end result of what these guys do. And if you go on down and look farther down, he says, Then will no longer be infants tossed to and fro by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and the cunning craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. You know, people can't lead you astray. Instead, verse, this verse actually says, Instead, truthing in love. Paul took the word truth and turned it into a participle. Truthing in love. This is what we do. There's no verb in there for speaking. We do the truth in love. But sometimes when we do that, we hurt people, even if it's in love. But the Scripture says the, the Word of God is profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. Four again. Universal number. So the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That word equipped is the same word that's used here. To prepare the saints to do works of ministry. And to build up the body. And then he says, then we will grow up in him who is the head. We'll grow up to be like Jesus. And I know that's why you're here on Tuesday evening. You want to grow up to be like Jesus. You sure wouldn't come out if you didn't want to. It's all about the Word being inside you. And I'm thankful for you being here. Uh, it's, it's a blessing to be able to share with you. And I'm grateful. I want to stop. I've gone a little bit over. Uh, we can discuss a little bit or ask questions or whatever you'd like to do at this point. I'll try to repeat the question if you have any. You see anything there? Or in, any notes or anything that you want to ask about? Or make a comment on?
We got to remember that <coughs> Acts six is the Jewish church, and they would not accept a woman doing anything, really. Well, I've always thought that from the standpoint of just because the men were selected, you think that their wives let them go minister to the Grecian widows alone? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. And when Paul lists the characteristics of the deacon over in First First uh, Timothy three, in there he says likewise the women or the wives, that word can be, it's a redundant, or it's an ambiguous word. Uh, the wives are also to be uh, above reproach and not gossips and so on. Uh, the characteristics of a woman deacon <coughs> is the same as the characteristics of a man deacon. And you know, there are churches that have women elders, and that's something I have not come to in my own thinking yet, but I know some women that I wouldn't mind serving on a board of elders with. My wife's one of them, Kara Snyder. You know, there are women who want to rule, and those are the ones that shouldn't be on, because there are also men who want to rule, and they shouldn't be on either. But men who want to serve, to help the church to grow, to be a blessing to people, uh, those are the elders and deacons and the men and the women. Yeah. He says if anyone desires the office of a bishop, anyone includes women, I would imagine. But I don't think in the first century that was acceptable. But if you read, I don't know, there's a book, uh, you may not have read this, uh, Harold. It's called, uh, let me think of the title, Women, Slaves, and Homosexuals. That's the title of the book. And it analyzes what happens in the Bible for those three topics. And it shows that women start off as property owned by the men. And over time, the farther you go in the New Testament, the more you get people like Phoebe and Lydia and others. Phoebe is called a deacon of the church at Sincrea. Now, so obviously they had a deacon there who was a woman. Uh, the farther you go in the Old Testament and the New, the more freedom women are given. Likewise, slaves were property to be owned in the Old Testament, but the farther you go in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, if you have what it takes to buy your freedom, then buy it. Otherwise, stay as you are. You know, so slaves also are freed more and more as you read through the Scripture. And then homosexuals, it goes the other direction. Homosexuals, God seems to, in, in the word, farther you go, he seems to tighten up more and more against that behavior. And not against the people. The homosexual people are just sinners like the rest of us. But it's the behavior. It's just like being an adulterer. You know, you go back in Leviticus and read, it says a man who has sex with an animal, you kill them both. A man who commits adultery, kill them both. Uh, a man who lies with a man as with a woman, kill them both. You know, it's an equal punishment for all these different things. So I think freedom, the, the scriptures teach freer and freer for women and slaves, but not so for homosexuals. This guy does an incredible job. I can't think of his name. There's two guys that worked on it. And it's a brilliant book. Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, I think is the title of it. Worth reading. Any other comments or questions? There's so much good stuff in Philippians. And tomorrow night we're going to deal with some really intimate, specific things. Excuse me? Ephesians. Did I say Philippians? Well, it's there too, but yeah, but I was talking about Ephesians, and, and that's what I said, was Ephesians. Okay, uh, any other comments or questions? Treat people right. Yes. 
With your God. That's right. Living for his glory. Waking up, thinking what I did for him today. And that's our motivation. That's it. Walking with him. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. Walk with me. That's all he's ever wanted. All, all the stuff that he's done for us. All the miracles. He's always just wanted us to walk with him. The first man who is said in the Bible to walk with God... His name was Enoch. That's where we get the word Hanukkah. It means dedicated. Second man that the Bible says walked with God was Noah. And God can use people who walk with him. He can change the world through people who walk with him. Hmm? Yeah, it's, you don't have to be perfect. Jesus is perfect. If we're yoked with Jesus, he makes up the difference for our problems. If we're, if we're busy serving other people, you know, if we're busy serving other people, we won't have such problems in our own selves. We won't have time. I, I called a poor lady from our church today and talked with her for about 10, 15 minutes. <clears throat> and she finally hung up on me. She is really angry at me because I told her the truth. And I told her in love. And I'm still praying that maybe her heart will change, that God will soften that. But she's one of the most unhappy people. I suggested to her she read the book Happiness is a Choice. Uh, part three of that is how to overcome anger. She's very angry. And not just at me, but at a lot of people, including herself, I think, and maybe even God. But you can deal with anger. <clears throat> and the way you do that is by learning forgiveness. You realize that forgiveness is the answer to all the problems of the world. That if the Arabs would forgive the Jews for God choosing them instead of the Arabs. You know, if, if Ishmael would have forgiven Isaac, the, the description that God gives of Ishmael, the Arabs, he says he'll be a wild donkey of a man and his hand will be against every man's hand and every man's hand will be against him. And boy, that's exactly the way the Arabs have been through all these generations. We need to pray for them. We need to pray that God will send dreams and visions to lead those people to Christ. All right, why don't we stand up and pray and I'll let you go. <coughs> One more night. Thank you, Father, for each person that's in this room. Thank you for Harold and Cindy. Thank you for their family. Thank you for the leaders of this church. Father, thank you that you've opened the hearts of these people and that your word has penetrated us and I pray that you will change us to be more like Jesus. That you will transform us on the inside, even though the outer is wasting away, so that we can be like you. We long to see you face to face, to be with you. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.